0: Today, Nate returns with his cohorts Eugene S. Robinson, lead singer of the art punk band Oxbow, and veteran entertainment attorney Alexi Auld to continue their discussion of Netflix's hip-hop evolution. This week, they look at Bounce to This, which covers New Orleans hip-hop from Bounce to No Limit and Cash Money Records. Pop in those earbuds and Enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're back again with Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson to continue our discussions of Netflix's hip hop evolution documentary series. This week we're starting season four, which begins with an episode about New Orleans hip hop. Bounce to this is the name of it. Um, General thoughts, fellas?
2: Anybody, anybody, anybody? Something really funny. Uh, I, I got ahead of you guys, and I watched this like weeks ago, right? And last night I said, okay, well, let me just brush up on it. I'll, I'll, I'll rewatch it again. I'm sure I'll remember all of it. And I, of course, remembered none of it and had to, it, but it, it but it's, it was weird. So I had to, I watched the whole thing and in part of what they hadn't touched on and they didn't really touch on until they were about 60% of the way through, they kept giving me the tourist version of new Orleans. And I know from personal experience that New Orleans is—it's the only place in America that I felt more physically in danger than than I like at odd times in New York, right? Hmm. And keep in mind, like in the '70s in New York when things were really bad, I, I you know I had a girlfriend in Harlem. Did it feel weird in Harlem? Brooklyn, of course. <clears throat> you know, you had to be careful if you went to Brownsville. Or or Bushwick or Bed Stuy, <clears throat> but not really. My dentist was in Bed Stuy. I didn't have any problems. Go out to Bay Ridge, you know Bensonhurst with mm. the kouji. Then you might you might have some. But, but uh, going to New Orleans and, and, and it's like you have to have eyes to see. If you're there uh, Bourbon Street, you're doing all the touristy things, and you're like ah, and this tourist vibe. But there are people there who who are, who are native to there and they just look at the city in a completely different way and so you know when they talk about the cat who's like a uh, 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 masterpiece like I don't want to put my I don't want my mother to see me die to have her go through what she went through in my and I was like okay that's now we're talking about the predatory horrible terrible and, and it was not it was not like urban decay which it was which is what I was used to when I went to New Orleans this was some kind of you know, antebellum weirdness, man, I, I you know it was who do or city, yeah, because you could you couldn't understand anybody either, like I go into a store and I'm talking to this woman, <clears throat> somebody comes in, she starts speaking Cajun to him or Creole or something. I was like, not, and I speak a little French, not a single word that I understand, so New Orleans has always kind of freaked me out, and they got to that freaky stuff kind of about sixty percent of the way through, and I go, okay. Now I can breathe easier. Now, this, <laughs> now this is not bullshit. I'm down with it. So no, it's funny.
3: I yeah. had the same. I had the same experience when I went to the first time I went to New Orleans, and the same experience watching the documentary. I guess first watch. I mean, watching the show. I guess first watching the show. I think going back to the Canadian thing, it seemed a little too touristy and a little too, like, for people that knew nothing about New Orleans at all. Like, it was so rote and repetitive for anybody, especially in this country, that just knows about New Orleans and how they do the first line and second line. Like, even if you don't know it's a first line, second line, everybody from watching James Bond flicks, right? Like, I mean, that's the UK, right? You know the whole Mardi Gras, you know the celebration of life and death death it was just so rote so the fact they spent so much time on that by the time they finally got to the raw new orleans i saw i mean uh, similar with new Eugene. i grew up in dc the block i grew up on was like that was when dc was the murder capital of the world all right like the corridor for the uh heroin trade for the uh, East Coast was the block behind my house, right? So when I went to New Orleans uh, to, and I stayed with, um, uh, it was in law school. A friend of mine, best friend, and I went to stay with a friend I knew from in a law firm, right? And she said, "Hey, when you guys go, leave your wallets in the apartment. <laughs> I've been wild in the fucking my apartment." She's like, "Leave your wallets in the. Don't take your wallets with you." What the fuck? Is she going to jack my wall? You know what I mean? Like a whole street thing. Like she want to jack my wallet. You know, but I didn't have much money on cash on me. And straight up the same thing as Eugene. Like I grew up, I grew up around and near and avoiding rough ass violent neighborhoods where, you know, guys who like stood up for pregnant women getting abused by men ended up getting their guts cut out or their brains blown out. Like you mind your business, You you know, like just, just that kind of like PTSD I suffer from to this day. But still, like, you know, I never – leaving my wallet in the place I'm – I've never experienced that kind of shit. And then you walk around, it's like, oh, okay, now I know. It's just – it's totally – because one of the worst yeah. things you could do in any kind of environment is people know who's from there and who's not from there. So when I was in law school, there were some Columbia uh, Business School guys that were living in Fort Greene that got straight up shot to death because they were not from the neighborhood, and people knew that. You know, people know. I mean, in Brooklyn, I mean, Eugene, like friends of mine from uh, in New York would say, "Look, I can tell where someone's from based on how they're dressed. I can tell like what part of Brooklyn they're from, whether they're from Queens, like so." And in D.C., the same thing. Like you can tune in and zone in and know people that belong there and people that don't belong there. And in New Orleans, you straight up got this sense of like, there's like a target on my back. People know I am not from this place, no matter how like diverse and people could look like they're my cousin or distant. No, that's it.
1: Yep. And it's a sinister, creepy thing. It's not always like in your face, like going to Detroit where it's like, Oh, this is scary. This is bad. You can be partying in a bar or whatever. And, you know, somebody that's from there will tell you, you know, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. You'd have no idea, you know, and and I I know people partying from Texas, partying in New Orleans, somebody in their group just disappears, you know, and creepy stuff. But anyway, let's let's get to the show. So, yeah, they do spend quite a bit of time explaining the basics about the birthplace of jazz, the Mardi Gras Indians, the call and response, the second line sound. I think they have to do that. Like, I think you, I think you have to assume just What's a, a matter of,
2: uh, give, give me two, three minutes on that. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah.
1: You're, you're fading in and out, Eugene, but yeah, the, the, I think they'd spent a little too much time on it. And there was one thing that, that bugged me that uh, Charlie Braxton, the journalist said, which was that the French were more lax with their slaves, which is a totally risable Piece of bullshit. The the deal <laughs> was, the I mean that the French in Haiti were I some of the worst.
2: Like, look at that state school
1: guy, Risable. Nice. Hey, you gotta, hey, you know, we <laughs> riseable. We risable! We
3: risable! We risable! We risable.
1: <laughs> 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 but the the French were not nice to the slaves they were haiti was some of the most horrific shit going on anywhere in slave owner the deal was they let him have drums which in north america we did not we took the drums away because they were terrified they could they knew that the slaves could communicate with drums and, and there were a lot of white people living amongst the slaves like in south carolina and they were terrified one or two slave uprisings and that was it no drums but in the Caribbean, where they were treating slaves like rental cars rather than something you invested in, they were working them to death. That was the whole plan. Bring them over from Africa, work them to death, and bring over some more. And they didn't give a shit if they had drums. And the only people, the only French, there were just a tiny minority of French people in Haiti. And and they knew what the deal was. They were there making big bucks and risking their lives by surrounding themselves with overwhelming numbers of slaves and treating them especially horrible. So I, I just thought that thing was risable. But New Orleans was one of the only places in the continental North America, continental U.S. where black folks could have drums. And so it did it did develop a different culture. And also, um, and Ned Sublet has a great book on the history of New Orleans and New Orleans music, and he's got another one on Cuban music. And there's a whole, he's got a whole theory that the, Slaves in the Caribbean tended to be more from sub-Saharan Africa and the Congo, whereas the slaves in North America tended to be more from the Sahel and the, the Islamic parts of, of Africa because the Spanish would not have Islamic slaves because they've had, they had their whole history with Islam, and so they, they forbade that. So anyway, so that's why you have these differences between Cuban music and North, North American, African American music. And New Orleans is this totally unique, special place, Produced jazz, but has produced a ton of other stuff. You know the the sort of shuffle R and B of Fats Domino and and the funk of the Meters and all this. So I think they had to talk about that just because New Orleans has such a storied musical tradition. But I, I I can see where you think they spent too much time on it. But then they get down to business and and they start talking about the first um first major hip hop record to come out of New Orleans, and 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 this was Manny Fresh. And Gregory D and Manny Fresh Buck Jump Time, and this was, you know, they bring in Alan Toussaint, who's one of the legends of New Orleans music, um, you know, wrote tons of hits in the '50s and '60s and '70s, and he had a studio, he had these kids there, and they were like, hey, and this this reminded me very much of sort of the Outcast thing where they got the Christmas record opportunity, like they're letting these kids make a record, but they're pushing them make it sound like New Orleans. And 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 they're implying that they want horns on the record. And Manny Fresh is like, man, <laughs> you know, he don't want nothing to do with that. He wants to get some 808 beats on there. But but he ends up doing a snare drum thing that's a triplet, that's a classic New Orleans drum pattern. So even, you know, he didn't do what they wanted him to do in terms of the horns, but he did do what they wanted him to do in terms of introducing some New Orleans flavor. And so but sometimes like one of these regional hits But it's not the main plot line of the story. And the main plot line of the the story, at least the first half of the episode, is Bounce, which is a totally cool, unique regional scene. And that's one of the things I like about the way they do the fourth season is they, they really focus on the regionalisms. And it's less, you know, we complained about the Jiggy Era coverage last season, but this one... Um, I dig it. I didn't know much about bounce before this and and still have a, a ton to learn. I remember, you know, 10 years ago or so when Lil Wayne got big, and I guess it was late 90s when back your ass up got big. That's when I first started hearing about bounce. And then there was the whole media thing about sissy bounce, um, which I've heard different things from people that I know in New Orleans that that like you know, sissy bounce isn't a thing. It's just bounced by people who happen to be gay or trans or whatever, and it became this big media. There was like a Vanity Fair article, and and New York Times was all over it and stuff. But from what I can tell, there's not a musical distinction. Um, but that was they left that out entirely. Although several of the characters that they're talking to are famously um, involved or leaders of this sissy bounce scene, whether or not that's a scene.
3: And Alexey, well, they showed a mural. They showed a yeah. mural with Frida, so I don't get it.
1: Yeah, I mean, and they quote Frida. You know, I mean, she's she's on screen quite a bit, but that's that's something that comes along later. Like this story is focused on the early '90s and up to I think it gets up to about '98. So the the sissy Bounce thing is kind of late. Eugene,
2: I have to tell you, I was I was wor- I was at, at late '90s, right? I was at uh, editor in chief of Code Magazine, and uh, you know, if you're in a position like that. You get stuff I got, you know, from Columbia Records. I got Rage Against the Machine in the same package that I got Cypress Hill. And it was with the professional, you know, 8x12 photograph and all this stuff. And I remember having this pile uh, on my desk of like paper, paper CDs, right? Just like like the cheapest shittiest wraparound and like, you know, things that you just, if you've gotten into the habit of getting demo tapes, you you just figure whatever's on that, I'm not going to listen to. And I'm looking at this one called uh, the bling bling. And, and I'm like, what the fuck? Fuck that shit. I'm not going to. And I left it there. And then I remember that was right around the time that they said, uh, the labels broke them off thirty million dollars, and I didn't want to be, you know, I was a naysayer with the Beastie Boys. I was a naysayer with the Internet. I don't want to be the naysayer, there. so I rushed back to my desk, went through all those things, put it. In, I still have it in my computer. That uh, uh, BG and Chopper City. It was like one of their first demo CD, and it was as great as it. As, you know, it was like maybe even. I don't even know if it was a once, if it was a remix version or whatever it was at or the public, they, they remixed it for the public, but it was like, it was great. It was like the first thing that was Southern, but didn't feel country to me, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and I felt, I felt like, whew. Okay. Thank God. I didn't blow it out. This I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. The, these guys. Are, <laughs> You're on it. I, but I just couldn't figure out. And I was sort of, feeling like wanting to call bullshit on the 30 million dollar figure i don't know how they made sense of it and when they go into how many records they had you know and when i start to think about and you're talking okay, about master p and cash money records yeah yeah, yeah master p and gang yeah, no limit in cash money records right so when i'm thinking about um how many Yo, sorry had, it's no limit they got a the 30 million dollar yeah money cash money yeah no, cash no, money. No, cash money got the
3: $30 million. Uh, Cash, okay. Yeah. There was My no bad. limit that was pumping out all the, you know.
2: So they yeah, yeah. So and if you're looking at a wholesale cost for CDs, you know, see, record labels got away with murder for a bit because the cost of CDs was dropping, but they could still move those things for like twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine. I was like, okay conceivably so you know the the narrative was like these guys sold them out of the back of their cars and and now 30 million dollars yeah it was a little bit more than that it was a little bit it, there were a lot of big giant steps but you know the best part about it was in this is in a, you know that they like he said at one point he said something like you know we didn't really need the record labels you know we we're selling enough <laughs> fine but uh whatever uh, yeah it was it was it was interesting to to want to wanna, Poo-poo it, hear that 30 mil, go double back, go back in and find out one, it's good. And two, uh, I mean, the other piece of the puzzle was, you know, you could see when you're talking to these cats and you see the gold records on the wall, the platinum records. I go, okay, now I see the 30 mil. Now I see. I want to know the person who brokered that deal. That's who I want to know about at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd be curious about that too. And And the thing is, they could justify that expenditure just on it being a successful regional scene. It was so successful in New Orleans and, and the South that it could be very profitable for a record company just as that. But then it breaks out nationally with Back That Ass Up and Juvenile and then Lil Wayne and everybody. And it's one of the dominant sounds of the knots, but but let's go back a little bit and talk a little bit about what is Bounce. And this whole thing that it's based off one flop record from Profile Records from new york with a dragnet it, it's the drag rap and you know uh, uh, one sample of of that spawns an entire genre and it reminds me of a, something you a trigger man yeah trigger what what's what's renamed trigger man because they say trigger man in, yeah. in, the, in the song I don't know if a it's a flop it, it it did nothing in new york I mean, it didn't hit it New anywhere. York. So what you going to do about that? <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was a flop record. It did not it didn't trouble the charts. The the band that did it broke up. I can't remember their name. Um Damn. the Showboys. It was by the Showboys. I mean, it troubled nobody in New York. I mean, it it came, it went, nobody no problem. But one thing that that they Manny Fresh is taking credit for introducing it to New Orleans, but DJ T-T Tucker will tell you TT Tucker claims I'm the one that brought that record to New Orleans. So they don't they don't mention that here and I like, you know they're talking to Manny Fresh who we already talked about, you know, he did the buck jump and then he goes on to become one of the big producers when the stuff is really hitting but you know DJ TT Tucker who they do mention in this did the first version of Where They At? And then DJ Jimmy does a cover of it. And they don't, they fuzz, fudge that here. Like they, they, the way they talk about it, they mention TD Tucker and DJ Irv, but they don't make it clear that these guys did the first bounce song, basically. And then DJ Jimmy covers it. And I'm not clear on what exactly Manny Fresh's role with that. Like his dad, who's a legendary sound system DJ, um, Sabu. Know, says, I, yeah, Sabu introduces him to DJ Irvin, T.T. Tucker, and, and they get, get in there. But anyway, I just wanted to give T.T. T. Tucker props because he, he's out there saying that, you know, I, I'm the guy who brought drag rap to New Orleans. And I just found it fascinating. I mean, it's like something you hear about with reggae in Jamaica where they'll get obsessed with a bass line and have 30 records with the same bass line or a particular drum fill. And, you know, there's, there's 30 records with that drum fill, original songs, drum remixes on and on and on. It's just, you get certain regional audiences that get a hold of a beat and just want to chew on this shit, you know, forever. And, and it's, it's, and they got quotes, you know, from the DJs saying, you know, if, if you put on that record, you're going to have to be playing it for the next four hours, you know? Yeah. People are going to want to dance to the, this shit. And it's it's totally fascinating. I mean, you know, it, it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And Alexi, you're from D.C., so you got the whole go-go scene there that never had its breakout moment. Uh, go-go is one of those things, like, I remember multiple times getting all hyped up about go-go and never could quite get what the deal was until I moved to D.C. and I saw it, you know, yeah, in its yeah. national environment.
3: But there are a couple be- of times it did, though. I mean, the closest it came... What Eugene?
2: I'm just saying, Trouble Funk. Yeah, somebody played right. Trouble Funk, and I was like, eh. And then they said the thing that made sense to me was, like, you got to see them live. Yeah, and I was like, okay. So yeah.
3: th- it is, it is a it, it predominantly like a, the live experience. But I think the closest was EU's debut from uh, the School Days soundtrack, and then also Slave to the Rhythm, where uh, um, I think Grace Jones had a Rare Essence doing the go-go drums on that so yeah it totally is something that and that's what really spoke to me about this episode was it made me think about regional music and regional sounds and stuff that really resonates with people from a particular area and the when someone is looking to blow up nationally Having to get a feeling that you have to get away from that, or incorporating it to make you unique as opposed to what's going on nationally, and maybe wonder uh, from a musical perspective, you know, with uh, uh, digital music in the internet, with local music, especially in wake of COVID, right? Like local venues and performance, like what impact has that have on local regional music scenes and sounds like is there now gonna like some kind of blurring that's going on with the music i mean it, I, i'm just do you guys like are you more i'm sure you're more familiar in terms of what's going on in the music scene but has there is the local sound as strong as it was back in the day like does it still exist when no does it no
1: chance no chance uh, and 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 this Bounce is kind of a laggard in that and being a regional scene. Like in the 50s and 60s, when you had independent radio stations in every city and independent record companies all over the country, you had dozens of regional scenes. You know, you had a Tex Mex scene in South Texas, you had a different scene in San Francisco, you had a scene, you know, in Chicago, you had scenes in Detroit, Memphis, all over the place. And You know, Nelson George's classic book, The Death of Rhythm and Blues, makes this argument that once big major labels bought up the R&B labels, they took about a decade, decade and a half to kill R&B as such. And it was only because hip hop was something that was beneath contempt that it was allowed to emerge. I mean, they just didn't know what hip hop was. and They didn't see it coming. Same thing with house music and techno. Oh, and then also...
2: MTV destroyed music. And and, I mean, when I was touring America in 81, 82, 83, America was a nation of regions. Like you could really Mm -hmm. see it, feel it. You could hear it. You know, suddenly you you couldn't understand what people were saying. And you were in Nebraska. MTV comes out and then it was, I could be in Nebraska. I could be in Oklahoma. I couldn't really tell the difference. And there's this kind of monoculturing thing. Okay. And then people stopped mtv stopped rather playing music videos and we had a few years and then the internet hit and then at this point now we're back to monoculture so yeah you can you can have people repping repping a region but the differences are, are pretty minor like alexi when you were talking about people being able to tell that you weren't from new orleans yeah that was when 20 years ago 15 yeah. years ago that you're talking yeah, about 20 years ago yeah. Yep. And now, you know, until you open your mouth, I remember sitting back when I used to eat meat sitting in a a, a rib joint in in New Orleans and nobody that had the slightest clue that I wasn't from there, of course, until I opened my mouth Mm -hmm. and they were like, oh. First time in New Orleans, it was like, no, no, not the first, but you know.
3: It's funny because I had, it's funny because when I went to New Orleans, maybe three years ago, so when I first went to New Orleans, was in law school, I hated it, thought it was, it just it wasn't for me because, you know, I was given the touristy thing, even off touristy thing. It just wasn't, there's nothing there really that, you know, really appealed to me, like given the, you know, living in New York and the DC dynamic and different kinds of things. But when I went back a couple of years ago, and i went to this arts district that had been established after katrina and then uh went to different kinds of scenes there totally different totally different experience and just like you said Eugene like i was you know n- you, you i couldn't you could not tell and the thing in terms of the area i was in like i saw cch powder the actress like at the grocery store, you know, and it's just yeah. like and it wasn't a big thing. No one was like bothering her. It's almost like New York all over again. Where it's like here's a space where you have someone that's like a celebrity walking around being able to mind their business. No one's bothering her. People, you could not tell where people are from. It's totally cosmopolitan looking. So, you know, maybe you're you're totally right with that, Eugene. That's it's that time, that's just what it's become, I guess.
1: Yeah, and 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 We'll talk, you know, as we do future episodes, Memphis is going to have an interesting local scene. Houston obviously had the the whole DJ screw thing. And so I'm not going to definitively say that regionalism is dead or in the past tense. I'm
2: sure, I hope something cool is going on someplace. Um, No, no, it, it is, but it's been replaced by the overriding, like the macro, the macro machinations, which are fundamentally alphas being, you know, uh, coming face to face with you know aspirational betas it's like you know uh like these guys are, they think they're the shit well i got something you're gonna let me in you're not gonna let me in okay well what about this and that 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 two-step is always gonna happen it, it's 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 happening now you know um with uh, you know metallica suing the internet and then you know, people like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, we could we could make this work for us. And now you got this like this cat that you were mentioning, uh, who was like, you know, put some crap up on SoundCloud, and now he's a super celebrity. They're are always and people like, nah, this is gonna help. You know, it's always the guys with the Young Turks who are like yeah, not willing to se- settle for the secondary status, and that two step, you know, and regions. You, Maybe overlay that, but uh, that's still the, the, the name of the game, right? It's like you, you know, you're in a sta- you're the established order. Fuck your established order. Yep. I got something better than that. So, yeah, and it's and it's
1: always going to come from the periphery of a culture too. It's never going to be the academy, the elite. You know, yep. um, it might be in the capital city, but it's going to be in a ghetto of the capital city or a backwater of the capital city. And maybe the internet will produce new backwaters that aren't necessarily the regional. backwater it of the might, internet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, SoundCloud was kind of that way yeah. through the, the teens where it wasn't that it was regional. It's just that it was self-selected people who were into SoundCloud and who were hip to the same way before anybody else. And, I mean, that's why I'm more interested in mumble rap than lyrical rap for the last 10 years or something. I think that's where the real vitality is. You know, Kendrick Lamar fans might disagree with me, but I'll stick with Lil Peep and Kodak Black, Uh to my dying day but we'll see we'll see we'll see how it shakes out but it, it seems like that scene to me is more vibrant than you know the hip-hop to me reminds me of like rock and roll in the punk rock era it, it's or the classic rock era waiting for punk rock to happen and maybe mumble rap is sort of the you know the punk of hip-hop but anyway we'll pause here and when we come back we're going to talk about um uh, Masterpiece, No Limit Records, and Cash Money Records, which brought us Juvenile. We already had Juvenile as a cameo here. He's he's on um, one of DJ Jimmy's records, but he's not the Juvenile that that becomes a big superstar. And of course, Lil Wayne is going to make his first appearance in the second half of this episode. So we'll be back with that shortly. A
2: Baby do it, baby stick it. Baby do it, baby stick it. I stick it, baby do it. I do it, baby stick it. Baby do it, baby stick it. Baby do it, baby stick it. I stick it, baby do it. I shake that ass like a soul shaker. Shake, shake that ass like a soul shaker. Shake, shake that ass like a soul shaker. Shake, shake that ass like a soul shaker. I said, did it. talking that shit and suck a nigga dick fun out, out. I said, did it. talking that shit and suck a nigga dick falling out, falling out.
0: And now a word from our sponsors
2: You know got body cleaner you know how to use a triple female It ain't hard to team her you keep your body clean huh you got a lot of yourfoldines huh Some of your you don't really wanna mess with them clowns huh you come up with them clowns huh you stuck with them clown you big gender you got your black own body remaining the moment you moment you don't wait you made study out of something you handle your
1: Welcome back. We've been discussing New Orleans' hip-hop history and its native subgenre, Bounce. Now we're turning our attention to the two labels whose late-90s success made the city a national hip-hop hub. So, no limit records, fellas. Masterpiece deluge of product.
3: Uh, you know. And, and that wasn't uh, indigestion.
2: Got, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got no, no limits, Snoopy. No limit gonna fuck him up, Snoopy. That's <laughs> so right. Was, That's right. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so, and so I think, that, I think they do a pretty good job. I don't know if y'all watched the BET Master P documentary series his son put together a couple of years ago. So no. Master P's been doing uh, serious like I don't know if you'd call it brand refurbishing, but major branding. Like the the Master P brand is well taken care of. His son, and they've got money, and they're you know telling the the no limit story. And hip hop evolution is right on there. You know, it's it's the classic. Um, what's what's the story? The kid that was always in the nineteenth century books, always working hard and getting rich. Come on, come
2: on, come on, uh, Ivy League Oliver guys. Oliver Twist.
1: Not no, you know, he's, he's talking
2: about Horatio Har- Alger stories.
1: Horatio Alger, oh. Alger, yes. It's a classic. It's a classic. I built No Limit on $10,000. I put up my own posters. I went to every hood. I started taking my van and going from
2: hood to hood, selling my CDs. That's the whole thing. Yeah, it was, like, Mar- it was sure. like it was like it was like Mark the match boy, Dick the boot black. And it was all and it was like same thing from luck, pluck, and perseverance. He rose up. I I read those. I read like every single one of those. I, I found him to be totally great, actually. <laughs> Well, there you go.
1: There you go. I've never read any of them. I did read P.T. Barnum's autobiography. Two different ones. Uh, that, uh,
2: that's a different story.
1: <laughs> it's it's a very similar story. Pluck, Luck, and and Hype. And and, yeah, and, and, and graft. Yes. <laughs> and they've got Silk the Shocker in there. They don't mention that he's masterpiece. Well, I guess they do mention he's masterpiece brother. They don't brother. mention that he's frequently named as the worst rapper of all time, which I think is a little unfair, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's no, it's out there. no. I mean, no. Google Silk as... the Shocker and worst rapper of all time. I swear will autofill. So, I mean, again, I don't. That's not my thing. I, I like guys who rap off the beat. I think had a unique flow. But you know, Bushwick yeah. Bill style, whatever. I mean, Easy E. I like all these guys. But
3: yeah. don't yeah. you dare uh, compare Easy E to Silk the Shocker. What are you talking about? That's blasphemous.
1: I, I mean, Silk the Shocker could probably do his own rap with. Without having to stop and and like doesn't matter
3: all we have are the recordings and i would say that the easy recordings no matter how many takes it took
1: look i Asuka take Sharker any day over with dr dre and ice cube i'm sure he would have benefited as well but anyway and so you know they they, they have miss t talking about it. a lot of people didn't like his music in the beginning bitches i used to be throwing that man cds back at him i remember that you know, and then it seemed when Master P started dominating the outskirts, then New Orleans was like Master P. But what they don't mention in this whole thing is that No Limits was a Richmond, California label. Like dude left New Orleans, <clears throat> moved out to near Oakland, and started this label. So this whole thing, like kind of this episode has this dynamic of No Limit puts New Orleans on the map, but they don't really have a New Orleans sound. And a lot of that's because they came up in California. Not beats by the pound, but Master P and and his his brothers and the early crew. It's it's a total. It's a California label that, that and and they do. <laughs> I think his brother mentions like they would go to DC and and in records. And I was like, I remember when I was watching this the first time, I was like, DC? What part of New Orleans is DC? Yeah. I can't, you know. Yeah. And well, they, they were doing that in the have, whole country.
2: They have to do that because I mean they didn't do shit for Richmond as far as I know. I mean, I've been out here the whole time, and then that was actually what you just said was the first time I'd heard it. So, uh, yeah, yeah, they 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 didn't make
1: impact. Although they did do some compilations with like E40 and other West Coast rappers, and that's the same trick he would pull later, where he would turn all of you know every No Limit release would feature basically every No Limit artist, you know, guesting on each other's songs and, and selling the whole thing. So. General thoughts on No Limits. anybody want to go first? anybody? anybody? Alexi? Alexi. You know,
3: I remember when so I first heard No Limit. My older brother, while I was in DC, um, had the, uh, the Ice Cream Man um, straight to video movie, and he's like, "Oh, you gotta see this masterpiece!" You know. So I watched. It was it was funny. It was it was you know very low budget you know a uh, uh, movie you know uh, and. No limits. One of these, it's one of those labels that I think, like you said in the in our Twitter discussions about, you know, they put out a lot of content, but not much of it was good. And I remember back they trying to get into No Limit and outside of one or two or three songs, making the mistake of buying an album. I like the mystical album. I like I like the one that he did for it. But other than that, it just, you just try to listen to it and enjoy it. It was really hard. Like the, the, the production quality wasn't that good. The, the, when they tried to go in-house and redo, you know, reperform perform uh, songs instead of sampling them, that was terrible. It just I, – I tried hard and I like No Limits. It's not like I had a grudge or hated them. I just really could not – outside of a couple of songs, make maybe go, uh, uh, and Mystical stuff, I just couldn't get into them.
2: Hey, you know Fred. Fred the Hammer Williamson uh, was actually for a period of time a pretty successful uh, film uh, director, <laughs> which people don't know. Um, and he was doing all kinds of like non-brand stuff, not not Spoke stuff, but like like versions of a Love Boat or, or, or <laughs> mo- movies that were uh, you know B movies, but still. And he had a he had a technique that I remember because uh, my stepfather interviewed him at some point, and his technique was fundamentally. It was cheaper for him to rent three cameras to film from three different angles and hope to God he got the shot that he wanted than it was to have a shooting schedule that was any longer than it would take, you know, okay, we're going to dolly in and we're going to pull that. Nah, 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 I wouldn't do that. And No Limit reminded me very much of that because, I mean, they, they were coming up when I still had a record store. And so, you know, you get serviced by these salespeople and they come and I'm just looking at the covers. I just thought, you know, I'm in a band. I put out records, man. This is, who did this cover? Yeah. What, did, what, what? What's happening here? But, it, you know, I had the same reaction to black metal, you know, and a, a friend of mine, actually, the guy from Leviathan, he, he he refused to, he refused to even explain it to me. <laughs> he was just like, it is, it is what it is. I just... He didn't even tell me that he wasn't going to explain to me. It was just pretty clear <laughs> that if you don't get it, you're a dummy. What can, I can't help you. I can't help you. And I started to think that No Limit was that way. And then they started doing stuff with Snoop. And right. and, and, and that's the
1: out. other big thing they leave out of this. They don't mention yeah. Snoop in the context of No Limit at all. And to me, like I was aware of No Limit because if mm-hmm. you went to – you knew you were in the black party, Houston if you went to a gas station and they had a whole shit ton of no limit CDs. Like they'd have the DJ screw stuff. And then I remember those pin and pixel covers Mm -hmm. and being like, what is this? And my (laughs) my buddy who was a big hip hop head who worked at the record store, I was like, what is this? And he was like, that is whack shit is what what his summary of it was. And even the CDs would be like cheap ass. Like it would be cardboard instead of plastic and – it reminded me of Trax Records, the, the house label where they would use recycled vinyl and you could sometimes like see shit in the vinyl, you know, and, and stuff. So, but but again, I think I think what hip hop Revolution does a good job of getting across Master P was a killer entrepreneur, like like and and really dogged. Like if you've ever heard his first couple of CDs, like, you know, this is not The Sugar Hill Gang, where it's it's you know lightning in the bottle first first go. This is not Outcast hit out the box. This is a guy who cannot rap, who cannot produce, who can't do album art, and he just doggedly keeps at it and finds people who can help him fill in each piece of the puzzle, and gets to a point where every No Limit CD would sell, you know. And and you didn't have to. The thing was back then, if you got somebody to buy the CD, game over, you won. It it's not yeah. like the day where where you need them to listen to every track or one track over and over and over again. Yeah. They didn't care if people listened to it. They just wanted them to buy it. Yeah. And yeah. and they built on it. And and he does eventually move back to New Orleans. And they don't go into this either, but it's only they went to New Orleans because they went to Baton Rouge because they were, you know, basically traveling the country all the time selling their records. They weren't touring, they were selling CDs. And they they picked suburban Baton Rouge as a place to live, mm-hmm. and and then turns out the country club estates wasn't that safe either because cause you got the Klan on your neck, you know. So then they go back to New Orleans, and that's when they get back in the story. He starts basically raiding every local label for people, and yep. he's got cash money, and and just builds on this. And the Snoop move, though, to me. Like going in and buying Snoop's contract yep. from an Imprisoned Street Knight, that's what put No Limit in the spotlight. That's why they had such a massive 1998, you know, where they put out like 20-something yep. records and and, and yep. half a dozen of them went platinum. Or,
4: it's
1: And crazy. the counts vary on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an incredible run. And, but then they don't go into it. He immediately then has a falling out with Beats by the Pound. You know, and they talk about how it's a factory and he had these five producers who were just cranking mm-hmm. out tunes and had all these different rappers who would just go and, and I thought it was telling, like I wouldn't even listen to it. I'd just get a track and from one guy yeah. and I'd go and I'd write my rhyme and I'd record it and I'd go get a track for another guy. I wouldn't even listen to that, you know, and like like the, there was no Motown quality control board here. It's not like yeah. you had to get past Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson and push shit out on no limit. I mean, you're just flying. And and Uh, But they did have their moment. I mean, make them say, "I remember that was a big hit," and and that was, you know, I remember they showed the footage. I think it was, it wasn't MTV. It was at the Source Awards, or I mean, they they played like some big, massive TV show. I can remember that. But they don't talk about how they left Snoop, and and they were still. Remember the story when they left Snoop behind, and a whole bunch of Bloods, like 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 the whole No Limit Gang crew, is about to perform. They're all hanging out backstage watching TV there's a bunch of death row guys hanging out and Snoop starts chatting with these guys and kind of gets lost and looks up and realizes all the no limit people are out on stage. And I'm by myself with Shug's guys and things are getting tense and there's like a whole deal. Like Snoop got arrested and, and you know, was running through the through the aisles and the no limits guys left the stage and there was gunfire on the record and there was a riot, like, you know, a total I, I craziness. Don't, I don't yeah. So, that. You know, but you're a, you're a fan of Snoop stuff with Master Pier. You've spoken well of it. Yeah. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know anybody who likes that album. I mean, I,
2: do you ever listen I, to the album? Uh, yeah. You know, but see, the thing is, the reality of it is, Shuffle, uh, you know, iTunes Shuffle, has changed the game, right? <laughs> Seriously, because if if it's rare for me to go through my list to pick out a, a solo record and listen to just that, mm. right? It's it, at this point now. Uh, my day begins and ends. I'll, I'm shuffle all the time, and I know it's a good record. If, so you're if still using it. an
1: iPod. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, That you're not That's, streaming.
2: You're no, iPod. no, I, no. I'm still iPoding it, man. <laughs> you know, or i i my phone or whatever. Same I, here. I, mean, I would
1: have been if my if my iPod hadn't died. Like.
2: You know, you see, now you, now you jinx things because I've been saying I got to get a cable so I can, then I don't know what's going to happen. So, um, but the, the reality of it is, um, uh, it's really changed. I mean, I, I wrote an article for uh, a, a Decibel magazine about it. Like, you know, I used to be kind of a eh, you know, so so fan of like a lot of bands. Shuffle has made me realize if I if I got to get up and walk across the room and see who the fuck it is more than one or two times, it's a good record. And a lot of bands have like, I was like, man, how could I have slept on these guys? Mm. So my, my next article, like all the bands I slept on because they didn't impress me by a record, but consistently in shuffle, I'm like getting up. Who the hell was that? Who the hell? Who the hell? So, you know, when I'm hearing Master P and Snoop, I'm hearing one cut at a time. I'm not sitting down trying to force feed myself the whole record. Right. I got a quick question so until before you get to
3: the next segment. Eugene, did you ever – in wake of the whole no limit, like just pumping shit stuff out there, right? Were you ever uh, uh, attempted or did you – were you ever tempted or did you ever follow that kind of model in terms of music where it's like, you know, I'm just going to flood the market with a whole bunch of stuff. I'm just going to be and producing, and You know, did you ever go for the, for the volume instead of the, the quality at all ever I, or ever get tempted to? Do no, that?
1: no, not even. I mean, you, you actually puts out now every five years. I mean, yeah, that's what i mean i'm just like,
3: saying because I mean, i'm fun. just saying like you know as a journalist and also as a musician like you're to watch just like yeah. machines and factories just crank shit out like was there ever a part of you said man could i just get a couple of people and just like crank some shit no out? Like, no no, you no. Ever- because see what
2: because see what you missed and what and what nate said and and what a lot of people miss on this is, is that you know you we always hear the story about the hip-hop guy who's oh he, he's too short selling to the you know cassette tapes out of his trunk but you don't realize that master p did is very much like what the uh uh, who are those cats uh those mma guys with the treetop and oh
3: tap out out, yeah
2: tap out those those, masks yeah those guys were at every show i'm not talking about just the UFC shows. They were at Gladiators Challenge. They were at King of the Cage. They were at Grappler's Quest. They went to that, that was the Josh
1: They went to Amarillo, yeah, Texas on the regular. I mean, yeah. Right. And Master P was doing the same thing. Like, they were crisscrossing nationally. the country,
2: selling, yeah. in other words, like I, and one of my bass players at one point said, you know, he started his own business, a t shirt business. And he goes, I consider it a successful week if I've done one thing for my business every day. And that's this model that these guys, if I'm not sell, if like, and realistically I've said this before, they were the number one sellers of no limit records in the world. Right. I, I guarantee you, no one was selling more no limit stuff in the early days than they were out of the trunks of their cars, wherever they happened to be. If they sold 20 uh, uh, CDs out of the trunk of the car, there was no distributor who was doing that, and even if there was a distributor who was selling Red or Orchard or one of those guys who was selling that mm, many CDs for Orchard. them, they they weren't going to see the money. They they, they, were, yeah, not gonna, yeah, or they yeah. were not going they were not going to see it. well with this return 30 percent return reserve, and then there's you know ways that distributors get you where you know you don't see the cow, you see it well it was sixty days, but then we've got like a thirty day, so it's nine months before you see you see anything. So these guys were working it, and it it was it was uh, you know I mean. From that that point of view, it, no, I was never in a position to be able to do that, never. and, and, yeah, and over, you also had a day job, and the right, music I had a like, day job. You know, this right. stuff, this stuff was all self funded. And the number two thing is, never had a place to store. That's why I'm always could, like doing these drives to get people to go to the Oxbow Merch Store so I can finally get some of this stuff out of my garage. You know,
1: Gotta mm. yeah, have a warehouse. So- I mean, I do think they do get the general gist of No Limit, though. This guy's this entrepreneurial machine. And Beats by the Pound, the thing, those guys are all from New Orleans. And and Mm -hmm. I do think you can hear that in there. They'll have those snare drum beats and stuff like that. It's not just ripping off the G-Funk style. Like, if you listen to No Limit stuff before he had Beats by the Pound, if you think Beats by the Pound is mediocre, like, listen to the shit he was doing before he got them. Like, it's just absolute ripping Mm -hmm. off. I mean, you can, like, peg which Tupac song they're ripping off, like, you know, and then which Dre song they're ripping off this time. And then they'll they'll rip that same song off six times on the same CD. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 but it's a real, it's like the story, you know, the potter who's just out there making pots every day. And eventually they get better than the one who spends, you know, months yeah. and months crafting the one perfect piece of ceramic. So well, let's turn to cash money, which is <laughs> the next generation of New Orleans. Drink till we throw up. Yes. And and so Cash Money the way they tell it here I mean it's it's Manny Fresh allied with with the Williams brothers Baby and Slim Baby's also Birdman. They don't mention the word Birdman. I thought that was interesting, you know, he's best known as Birdman uh, oh, now.
2: Oh, they they did in the, in the documentary I watched today.
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> There's some other documentaries about Cash Money that tell a different story. But they, you know, yeah. the thing that I think that they get across with Cash Money is that they combined gangster rap with bounce, and it was it's Manny Fresh is the guy, the producer that does all that. They do talk about the early days, the UNLP and and other early Cash Money artists. They don't mention all their shit is out of print because Baby won't spend the money out of his hundred million that he got from Universal would not spend the money to license the samples they used, which I, to me that's just a crime. Like if you're a record label and you're just letting. All your shit got to print, like six, seven years worth of stuff got to print, just because you're too cheap to pay. I mean, that's like we got into Puff Daddy for remixing the, the Biggie Small stuff just to avoid paying for samples. I mean, how much money do you need? But how and that's you another draw. thing. We yeah. need all the money if you're baby. Yeah. Like you, you need all. He'll
2: pay anybody. Like he's notorious for hey, this, and they let's, don't listen that listen listen i got i gotta as a former label guy i gotta i gotta speak up and fa just a little bit in favor of this guy you know and 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 also jimmy the gent conway you know these guys <laughs> Jimmy have, Burke, yeah jimmy yeah sorry jimmy Burke. you know you, you you they have wallets that work one way right the money goes in it doesn't come out and you know that if you do business with these guys, that's the way like if you have a side hustle that, that you can like somehow grift on the side and get that money into your wallet first, you're Jake. But if you're expected that they're gonna i guy mean, guys got a lot of a lot of fees, you know. I've I've had bands get, get salty with me. One one band was like, Yeah, you know, my brother's gonna come buy our house and get, get our records. A guy was convinced I was robbing him. I said, yeah. Okay, here are the receipts. I did a run of two thousand. We have a deal with a hundred are reserved for marketing and PR. And, uh, and so the math is very simple. So his brother came by, you know, his old tents came by in my garage and I said, there they are. And he goes, which ones? I was like, all of them. Uh, I gave him back 1800 records, which means he had sold a hundred, which based on the deal, I reached into my wallet and pulled out like $12 I go, There you go. Good luck to you. (laughs) selling those 1800 records you fucking prick and uh you know so so what, what he Try to what no limit keep...
3: it after that <laughs> hey you no. got a lack of record here's a record
1: <laughs> and we no, should say actually... no limit is well known for paying people well like the no limit mm. artists they they left the label but they got their masters they own their own publishing like master p has a rep a sterling repu- master, master p masters p. Master p. P. That's, right, that's right but well, cash you know, money they, i mean they don't pay keys. the t-shirt guy I mean nobody. They didn't pay that Manny Fresh left the label for not getting paid. Turk left. I mean, everybody. And I'm not even talking about all the people that have been shot. And lots of people have been shot regardless. But with cash money, I mean it's like
2: yeah. <laughs> that, that that that's <laughs> the that's that's the only way you get away with not paying people. If you don't if you don't pay people, you gotta know that people are gonna shoot you mm. unless you shoot them first. And then and we're not saying
1: it, they shot anybody.
2: We're just saying yeah, we're not people saying, have been I, shot. We're, not, we're just people have been shot. So the thing is, if you have a reputation for one not paying, and for shooting first, <laughs> hey, <not. laughs> the, the math the math tends to work out. But
1: you it, know, and favorite. they do focus in on juvenile and and back that us up, and that was. I mean, that was massive, and that was yeah, a big was. part of the the whole southern hip-hop explosion, and uh-huh. I was paying zero attention to pop in the late 90s, and I, you could not avoid that song. Like, you know, yeah. like, I heard it, I noticed it, it was, and I was surprised that it only charted, like, I think, in the top 15, but in my headspace, it was a number one record. I mean, that thing was yeah. everywhere, uh-huh. you know, at that time, and it, and it did, have a novel sound like that's where i first heard it bounce i was like what the hell is this and somebody Mm -hmm. tells you know the whole history of bounce and and all that stuff so you know i don't know i don't know but watching the hip-hop evolution i do not blame them at all for the way they told the story i felt like they they told the story really well and they avoided the minefields it was interesting they didn't talk to birdman or his brother um Mm -hmm. and they do talk to like some of the the old school unlv people and 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 Others and Manny Fresh, you know, is talking and Juvenile is talking to him. So I thought they did a good job of covering the ground without, without getting shot, <laughs> without flipping over rocks. Yeah,
3: let's <laughs> realistic about that, man. Without yeah. uh, you know worrying about the cash and without getting shot. <laughs> That's what exactly it is. so win-win. Exactly. <laughs> yes,
1: and it's telling. I think that Master P was not intimidated by Shug Knight. In the least, like you know, I, I'm sure you guys have seen the interviews where people are like, you, you know, there's some white guy that's always in in documentaries about no limit, and he's like, I told Master P, like, you're gonna go, you're gonna deal with Shug, he's he's scared. And Master P's like, He got guns, I got guns, we'll do business. Like, I'm not scared of him, like, I'm not scared of anybody. Like, that I'm, was the word back in
3: the day, and that's what I thought was funny. Was it seemed like the only place I, I recall, like, the word on the street was the only place that snoop could go would be no limit i mean straight up in terms of like safety and just you know and not having money and just the whole shebang like that was the only place he could that was the safest place for him to go
1: and it worked out except for the night they left him backstage during the big show but you know (laughs) they didn't get him out but i never thought i never thought snoop could rhyme over those flows like i mean is is the stuff snoop did with master
2: p like Surfacing in your shuffle, like do you find? Yeah, yourself- yeah, yeah, it does. But but it does it does. It, you know, the funny thing is, it doesn't get me to go get up and go across the room to see who well, it cause is. You know who but, it is. It's Snoop Dogg. Yeah, because I know who it is, and and I focus more on Snoop. And so in that way, it's mm-hmm. a win-win. It's a win-win for Snoop. It's like it's nice to see off-label Snoop. Is what the mm-hmm. I'm thinking about. It, you know? Um. So it, uh, it 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 doesn't come across as a, as a loss to me, given you know his cultural significance. I mean, and it got so him over the hump.
1: I mean, he became yeah. Snoop Dogg, the the guy that does TV yeah. shows with arthur Stewart, as a result of yeah. this. Like it yeah. it got him back out there. He's got product. He's touring. He's doing movies and and masterpiece. All vision of getting beyond the music, you know, worked perfectly for Snoop. And I just I did think it was funny that they didn't even mention Snoop in this episode. Though. Yeah. I mean, uh, because you know that was just such a big part of No Limit breaking through nationally. You know, so any any final thoughts? Should we talk about Juvenile a little more? Or? No,
2: well, no. The, I mean, also I was a fan of, a fan of Mystical and the, this whole jail thing where I guess he's getting out of jail. Should they? You know, I, um. I wish wish that, well, they, they touched on it as much as, as you said, like it made sense, but that supplementary documentary that we watched, uh, um, you know, about the shootings and, and it's, it was interesting to me that um, I don't know, man, you had, I mean, it's a, it's a toxic, toxic brew, you know, like all this money and not only all this money, but, you know, street ethos, all this money, yep. and of course the, the ever-present fear of losing that money and having to go back. And that, and and I wish, on a certain level, people would talk about that. And I think I, I always think I hallucinated this thing, but I'm quite a hundred percent sure it really happened. I was somewhere like some hoity-toity place, like a really nice place, and I'm waiting, and they had like a magazine, like Architectural Digest, Architectural Review, and I pick it up, and it says Todd Shaw's plate Todd show you mean too short and it was it was a whole like a four or five page spread on on two shorts I house i should let you on this excuse you, you this is like a third episode you've talked about no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but hold on hold on all right, okay. all right so dr dre and i mean there are numbers of these cats dr dre and snoop i'm super curious as to all these cats whose brand is about keeping it real. Once they have a few hundred million dollars, how do they raise their offspring? And it, you start in dribbles and drabs, you start to get a sense of it. Like Snoop's son is uh, at, one of his kids is at USC. And you know Snoop wanted to guarantee he got in. So unlike the ones who went to jail for this, he's, uh, I'm going to buy a wing of the building or maybe give $10 million to the football team or so. And I I, I just wonder if there's this kind you of problem It's not
1: that hard to get into USC.
2: Like, No, I you're mean, not. That That's absolutely not correct. It is absolutely it's not, not correct. that it's hard to get into USC. <laughs>
1: I mean, this is not Stanford.
2: This isn't uh, Stanford uh, uh, to get uh, into the new UCLA, uh, but it is not. Uh, um Alexi you want to tell them <laughs> things have changed since yeah. the old man in the middle since the old man in the middle it's not a, it's not an easy school to get into the, in the middle. <laughs> all right, right all right all right not Admission not, has changed its way. it's changed my my kids my kids went to, <laughs> my kids went to I do want to mention
1: we we're, we're, we're running out of time but I do want to mention that uh, masterpiece brothers see murder is in prison on a totally bullshit yeah. railroad. Like, Louisiana's the only state in the country that lets you go to prison when the majority of the juror can, you don't have to have a unanimous jury. Like, yeah. he got, he had a 10 to 2 vote. He had two holdouts on his second murder trial, and oh. they sent him to prison for life with no parole. And in a bullshit case, like in a case with a jailhouse snitch, you know kid gets shot in a nightclub when there's fifty people there and they and they pin it on the famous guy and most of the evidence against him was his lyrics. So you know, same murder guy. And,
2: and his name, I imagine. Yeah.
1: No, it was it was it was predictable. Yeah. But anyway we're out of time. That's it for our tour of New Orleans hip hop as presented by Hip Hop Evolution. Next week we'll be back to discuss season four, episode two, The Southern Lab featuring DJ Screw, Three Six Mafia, and Lil' John. And I'm looking forward to that one because all of those guys. Uh, 3-6 Mafia gets a bad rap, but but I, I found that episode to be really fun. So
3: Yeah! Huh?
4: That's <laughs> <laughs> <Not> right! <laughs>
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate will return with Eugene S. Robinson and Alexi Auld to continue their discussion of hip-hop evolution with a look at the Southern Lab, which covers Houston's DJ Screw, the 3-6 Mafia from Memphis, and Atlanta's Lil Jon. Let It Roll is a pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts, at www.pantheompodcast.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park.